Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how Cochise County's recorder has more or less consolidated control of elections there. And a conversation with one of the first Lost Boys of Sudan to come to Phoenix three decades ago. But first, Democrats in the House of Representatives staged a protest of sorts this week, voting against all bills for the last two days in an effort to shine a light on what they call a new unwritten rule that no bill will be voted on without the support of the majority of Republican representatives. Democratic leader Andres Cano has been speaking out about it, but now GOP leaders are saying this has always been the case. Here to sort it all out for us is our own Ben Giles. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Okay. So first, explain what this rule does. So let's call it the majority of the majority rule. And it is an unwritten rule, as you mentioned. There's nothing on the books about this. But what Republicans are saying is that there's 31 of us, 16 of us have to support a bill for it to get a vote on the full House floor. Mm -hmm. 16 Republicans have to. and, And what's What's been disputed, depending on who you ask, whether or not this is a new policy or not a new policy, the one thing that I haven't heard disputed that is very new is that Democrats are now required to walk around the House chamber with a green sheet of paper and get 16 wet signatures, fresh signatures Mm -hmm. uh, from Republicans who attest that they support a bill in order for it to go through. Now, that is bipartisan, but it's bipartisan on Republicans' terms. Hmm. So this is to get a bill even to get voted on. Yeah, this is after a bill has gone through the committee hearing process, after it's voted on in Committee of the Whole on the House floor. There's about uh, 31 bills that the Democrats have managed to get to this point in the process, but now they're not getting voted on what's called third read, a final vote in Mm -hmm. the House, because they don't have those 16 signatures. So does this essentially mean that Democratic bills need a supermajority to, to get that vote? Technically, no, but in reality, yes, because most Democratic bills have the support of the full Democratic caucus. And that's always been the case because Democrats are in the minority. Do the math. If you've got 29 Democrats and they all support a bill, you only need two Republicans to vote for something in order for it to pass. That's a simple majority, 31 right. of the 60 in the chamber. What Republicans are saying is, we they they're requiring 16 Republicans, 16 of the 31 to approve of a bill before it gets voted on. So in reality, yeah, that's a 45 vote supermajority, 16 mm-hmm. Republicans plus the 29 Democrats who presumably all support the bill. So Democrats are not happy about this. What are they saying? They're saying that the signature requirement is is new. It's embarrassing. It's demeaning. They were walking around the floor on Tuesday trying to gather signatures. And what I was told by one uh, source in the House is that Republicans were refusing to sign it almost uniformly as if, you know, they were discouraged from signing signing these sheets. Uh, uh, it, it was described to me as uh, a tactic to delay and embarrass the Democrats. What about the GOP? What, what's their response to all of this? 
Their response is that this has always been a rule for Republicans and that now they're equally applying it to Democrats or that others have argued that it's always been a rule for Democrats, too. Um, I've talked to a couple of sources who've covered the Capitol for a while. Um, I I don't have as much experience covering the House. I used to cover the Senate. Mm -hmm. But um, what I've been told is that this is a arbitrary rule that's been applied arbitrarily over time. There are instances, think back to 2013's Medicaid expansion, when things do pass with a majority of Democrats and a minority of Republicans, but it is very rare. So in practice, this majority of the majority rule has been the case for some time. Okay. So in essence, then, does this give more control to the far right wing of the GOP, which has become more prominent? Certainly. I think especially this signature requirement now is something that some of the newly elected far-right GOP uh, members in the in the House of Representatives were agitating for in, in, uh, in meetings this week. And it, it, it does make you wonder who is running the show in the House, because House Speaker Ben Toma would presumably have to sign off on this policy. The signature policy, that hasn't been disputed as something that that isn't new. Um, I, I specifically asked the House communications team about that and got no answer yesterday. Mm. Um, so why let that happen? It seems like the far right, which has gained members in the House and the Senate, is exerting a little more influence. And really what it does is it just warps the sense of what is bipartisan. Yeah. I know in the past, Republicans have crowed about having bipartisan support for bills when they get 31 Republicans and one Democrat to support a bill. Mm -hmm. Technically, that's bipartisan. But now Republicans are basically saying the only thing that's going to happen in this divided government with a Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs, is bipartisanship on our our terms as long as most of us support something. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about that Democratic governor. The leaders of the GOP caucuses in the Senate and the House sent her a letter saying basically they're open to meeting with her on the budget, which, of course, is the biggest bipartisan thing they probably are going to have to figure out. That sounds promising. Yeah, it was a pretty, uh, it was a letter filled with like backhanded compliments, I guess you could say. (laughs) Um, I'm looking at this letter right now that starts off with calling out Hobbs for a flip the ledge fund, which she announced in February. She's trying to get Democratic control of the House and Senate so that she can have a Democratic controlled government in her final two years in office. That would be 2025 and 2026, at least when her first term is up, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're, they're saying this is mixed messaging, Governor Hobbs. On one hand, you're trying to boot us from office uh, 50 days into the legislative session. You're announcing this fund. On the other hand, you keep saying you have this open door policy, blah, 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 blah. You want to work with us. So uh, it was a little snide in that way. And then this is my favorite part of the letter when it comes to, you know, receiving feedback and working together on the budget. The Republican leader said, we believe we can achieve most of our priorities and include yours that are reasonable. <laughs> Whether <laughs> not to sort of bipartisanship there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bipartisan, again, on Republicans' terms. All right. We'll have to leave it there. KJZZ's political editor, Ben Giles. Ben, thanks as always. Thank you. The Cochise County Board of Supervisors has given control of the county's elections to recorder David Stevens, at least temporarily. The county made national headlines last year when supervisors initially refused to certify the results of the midterm elections. They eventually did so after a judge told them they had to. Now Stevens, an election skeptic, will have pretty much total control over how elections are run there. 
Jen Fifield of VoteBeat has been covering this and joins me now to talk about this latest action. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. So how did this come to pass that David Stevens is now basically running the entire show down there? Well, there, there's a long history here, uh, starting with the November election. Like you said, they refused to certify their election results. They also tried to illegally hand count all of their ballots. That was something that the recorder, David Stevens, supported, and the elections director would not do. She said that would be breaking the law. That's where this conflict began, really. The elections director, Lisa Mara, very well-respected, resigned leaving uh, that that position open. But even before she resigned, they were talking about taking her powers away and giving them to David Stevens, who was more willing to do the type of things that they wanted to do. Why, for the two supervisors, it's a three-member uh, board of supervisors in Cochise County, two of them voted uh, to make Stevens basically in charge of everything. What was their rationale for doing that? They say that they want to make everything more streamlined in the county to give him more control. Really, they're they're not listing off their reasons when they're doing this. They're just saying that this is the way they want to do it now. And there's all of this history showing that they do want to try hand counting ballots. They want him to move forward on his ballot security paper idea to put ballot watermarks onto ballots. Mm. They want to test out different ideas brought to them by GOP members in their community and statewide. And they want to be the testing ground for this. And they know that he's going to be able to move forward with that if he has more control. So they really seem to be looking, as you say, to make Cochise County kind of a laboratory for elect different election ideas, I guess. That's how it looks from both inside the county to voters and residents there that are concerned about the security and integrity of their votes and to people across the country who have been watching this unfold. So there was one Democratic member of the Board of Supervisors who voted against this. We also know that the Solicitor General for the the state of Arizona and the Attorney General's office raised some concerns about this. What are the what are the issues that they're raising? Well, it's, it's funny because Maricopa County for decades more, gave more power to its recorder over elections. We have a split system here in Arizona where an elections department runs most of elections like election day and voting, and the recorder handles voter registration. Maricopa County for decades gave more power to its recorder, Helen Purcell, to do those things. So this is a historically perspective. This has happened before, but the Solicitor General is now saying there's concerns about how, just how much power they're giving David Stevens and the checks and balances that would be in place that are required under state law. We're going to see if uh, they make any move on this now. Uh, and considering the Secretary of State, Adrian Fontes, says he's fine with counties doing things they want to do when they want to do it. So let's talk a little bit about David Stevens and who he is and what he believes. He's a former state legislator, now obviously Cochise County recorder. He, You have described him as an election skeptic. What does he believe? He is a former state lawmaker, like you said, Republican, close to far-right lawmakers, um, such as former Secretary of State candidate Mark Fincham. He's called himself best friends with him. He's on the board of a nonprofit with him, and he shares a lot of his ideas, which are um, he doesn't trust parts of his own system, including mail-in voting. He doesn't trust the mail system. He doesn't trust. He doesn't know if he trusts machines or not. He says he would he would like to test out hand counting ballots. He has ideas for this ballot security paper. So he is taking all of the far right GOP ideas about how insecure elections are. And he is willing to then put those into test in his county. 
So do you get the sense, based on your reporting, that folks who are concerned about this, either in the attorney general's office or elsewhere, that they might preemptively try to stop him from doing some of these things? Or might they wait for him to begin and then try to suggest that it's illegal and try to get him to stop? I think it could go either way. And I do think the conversation will be influenced by our new secretary of state, Adrian Fontes, a Democrat who yesterday uh, or two days ago when I spoke with him was really okay with this and saying, if the county believes it's right, I don't agree, but they can do what they want. And uh, our new attorney general, Chris Mays, Uh, might work with him on his opinions on this, might just move forward and say, uh, you are acting beyond the powers given to you by the legislature and you need to stop before you start. And Jen, as you report, this arrangement only runs through the basically through next election uh, in 2024. Does that lend any credence to the idea that this might be kind of an experiment? I I think it very much says that they wanted to give power to a particular person who's in office now. We know that the recorder position, the county supervisor's positions are all coming up in that 2024 election. So it's very much them being elected, wanting a certain person in charge while they're there and controlling only that person in that role and not thinking in the future, if a Democrat steps into that role, then we want them to have all power as well in the future. Interesting. All right. That is Jen Fifield of VoteBeat. Jen, thanks as always. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, a new memoir is out chronicling the story of the lost boys of Sudan. So I decided, I said, you know what, it's a good idea to write my story, put it down and share it with the rest of the people and also be able to get over so much stress in my head. We'll hear from the author as he reflects on his incredible journey. But first, a bill moving through the state legislature would allow some manufacturers to build and operate wastewater treatment facilities on site, which would make it possible for them to conserve and recycle their own groundwater. And as my next guest explains, a major food and beverage company with plans to build in the West Valley supports the proposal. Audrey Jensen covers commercial real estate and economic development for the Phoenix Business Journal and has written about this bill and its possible impacts. She joins me in, Audrey, first off, what are some of the key provisions of Senate Bill 1660? So basically what Senate Bill 1660 would allow is for an industrial processing facility, such as a food and beverage manufacturer, um, to essentially treat and store its wastewater from its beverage-making process in an underground storage facility. And as an incentive for storing that water, uh, the industrial user would then be able to use that water for free in the future. So that would kind of uh, eliminate the need for that business to go out and obtain or acquire additional water rights. Um, So it would be easier to get future water resources while also being able to recycle its water. What happens to that wastewater now? In the West Valley, there's a few food and beverage manufacturers right now. Two of them, Rauch, which makes Red Bull, and Mark Anthony Brewing, which makes White Claw hard seltzer. They do have existing operations. And for Mark Anthony Brewing, A lot of their wastewater actually does uh, irrigate local agriculture operations. And then Rauk, um, a lot of its wastewater is obtained by EPCOR. So it goes into EPCOR's sewage system or just the system that's managed by EPCOR. And then EPCOR kind of controls what happens to the water after that. 
So as you report, Nestle is behind this bill. Why do they think this is necessary as opposed to the way the law currently stands? So the reason Nestle is supporting this bill and believes it's necessary for their operations once their factory is built in the same area as Rauch and Mark Anthony Brewing is because it would eliminate the need for them or an option for them to send their wastewater to the public sewage system, which is managed again by the designated utility provider, which in this case is EPCOR. And then because their water is used for beverage making, they believe that would be a better process to just reuse that water. And another reason is because right now, EPCOR and other parts of the West Valley, they don't have the infrastructure to support the growth that's happening. So in this case, even last year, EPCOR wasn't able to take on the additional expansion for Rauk, which uh, expanded its factory in the past year. And so because of that, Nestle sees this bill that's proposed this legislative session as a way to come up with a solution for the wastewater capacity challenges in the area, and then also just to be able to recycle its water without putting it back into the sewage system. So this bill obviously is not without its critics. Um, Who doesn't think this is a good idea and what's their rationale? So the Arizona Municipal Water Users Association, which represents 10 cities in the Phoenix metro, um, all of them are opponents of this bill, as well as the Valley Partnership Organization and a couple of other organizations. And the reason that they are opponents of this bill and and do not support it is for a couple of reasons. Um, One is because they believe allowing industrial users like Nestle to recycle their own water and not contract with a utility or a water provider would pull potential water resources away from those utilities who are in charge of kind of managing what happens to the water in the area. So they kind of make sure that the water resources that they have, that they plan and budget for, are used for the most people in an area, whether it's residents or businesses. And so pulling away those water resources, they believe could negatively affect their water planning and resources. And then the second reason that they're opposed to this bill is because they are worried it could set a precedent for industrial users like Nestle to come in and pump groundwater and store that groundwater separate from the utility or city water system that's already in place in that area. On that first point, is there a concern that if Nestle, for example, doesn't send its wastewater back into the system and just keeps it for itself, that EPCOR, without that water, won't have enough water to meet the other needs that it has? That's a great question. I think there's still a lot of questions being answered and discussed right now. The bill right now is going through stakeholder meetings, and they're trying to figure out exactly what the effects or implications would be if this bill were to pass on utilities. So I'm not 100% sure if if that would mean EPCOR really wouldn't have enough water supplies, but it could reduce the amount of water supplies that they have in the future. Sure. This seems like a really good example of kind of the fine line that the state and business and cities and other stakeholders around the Phoenix metro area have to walk in terms of bringing in business, but also making sure that the businesses they bring in and the industries they bring in don't have a super net negative impact on the region's water supply. 
Yes, and I think that's a really important point because um, just just going off of what you said, um, just this past Friday, Governor Katie Hobbs was at a Valley Partnership meeting and a big topic of discussion there was water resources uh, in context of economic development and growth that the Phoenix metro area is experiencing. And she basically said that when it comes to water legislation, her office is not going to entertain anything that creates additional loopholes, while at the same time, there's other bills that are going through the legislature to try to basically reduce the amount of loopholes that are in the current water laws. So I think a lot of business and city leaders right now are really trying to find ways to still keep growth going, but at the same time, be aware and conscientious of how much water is being used versus the economic benefits of a project like Nestle or a semiconductor factory, for example. All right. That is Audrey Jensen with the Phoenix Business Journal. Audrey, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. The world is in an age of uncertainty. That's the finding of a new UN Human Development Report. From the pandemic to climate change to wars to a cost of living crisis, the report says we are experiencing a collective uncertainty complex, and that has implications far and wide. Craig Calhoun has done a lot of thinking about this. A renowned social scientist, he is the university professor of social sciences at ASU, and he told me, while we are certainly living with social and political upheaval, all is not lost. I spoke with him more about the report, beginning with the global pandemic. How did that change everything so fundamentally, almost almost overnight? Well, the first thing is that it made people afraid, and it made people unsure including unsure who to trust and where to get information. It made us reliant on science and statistics, and we're not all particularly well-trained to be reliant on science and statistics. So like our, our collective trust in science needed to be strong to get through this, but I think it, it probably mostly revealed cracks in that kind of trust. So we needed trust in authority figures, including scientific authorities, political others, to help us understand what was going on. But this came at a time when trust had been declining for years. Mm. Trust in institutions, trust in individuals, trust in leaders. So just when we needed trust, we didn't have it. In many countries, including the U.S., that had been made worse by polarization in politics and politicizing everything so that questions of health were immediately seen as political questions rather than just scientific. Yeah and by social media and intense, what amounts to gossip on a kind of huge scale, drowning out often more reliable voices. So that ties in very intricately with another big theme in this report um, that sort of has led to this idea of of an uncertainty complex, which is, like you say, like our trust in institutions and our political systems here in America and Arizona. It's it's our faith in democracy. It's our faith in elections. It's the most intense polarization and demagoguery that you know I've seen in my lifetime as a journalist. I mean, what are sort of the ripple effects of that as we talk about the social fabric that we had that has seemingly unraveled? Well, I think the social fabric 
really is unraveling in some ways, the extent of our connection to each other. An interesting bit of data that's not in this report, but it's come out more recently, is that people are less likely to know their neighbors, less likely to know others in their communities, and less likely to know who the leaders of those communities or the elected officials are. So that's just one example of ways in which we really do lack social connections. Yeah. Uh, researchers have been saying this for a couple of decades. Church attendance is down. The extent to which uh, people are knit together through public schools is down, partly because of private schools, partly because of the changing demographics of having children, aging population. Anyway, for all of these reasons, it's real that the social fabric is strained. And the pandemic raised that issue because the nature of public health is that it's social. Hmm. Let me ask you also about the other major kind of tent in this report, which is climate change, of course. We've been watching it unfold. We're in the midst of it already in a way that I think no one was really quite ready for. Here in the Southwest, it's you know record-breaking temperatures, it's wildfires, it's unpredictable storms, it's this mega drought. But it's also happening globally. I want to talk about the sort of existential part of this that that I think this report's trying to get at in terms of, you know, humanity's well-being and, and uncertainty as they're talking about. Do you think, especially for younger generations, the idea of climate change kind of looming over all of this, all of these other things that we've already talked about, makes everything more difficult going forward? It's like this this dread that we all have for what's coming Well, I think that's the right way to look at it, Lauren, and in the right order. We had this growing threat of a range of problems due to climate change. Climate change isn't just one thing. It's a causal factor, a giant systemic shift that then, as you said, has effects in floods, in fires, in blizzards, in unexpected places. And the extent to which people are worried has varied with age. We've been hearing for years from young people who are saying, you older people, I'm one of the older people, I won't say that you are, um, (laughs) have uh, created a disaster. And we're inheriting a much more dangerous and uh, difficult future because you haven't dealt with climate change. So that's a looming source of insecurity and anxiety. And then you add in the pandemic. And so we can't deal with climate change. And look, we have a huge pandemic and millions of people die who didn't need to die. Then add in war. Hmm. Many people had grown used to the idea that the world would remain mostly at peace. And if there were wars, they would not be among major powers and countries that we were familiar with. Mm -hmm. Well, that turns out to be a direct source of anxiety too. And the polarization that we were discussing, political polarization, economic inequality, uh, sharply different views even of what is true, all of those things come together to produce an additional crisis, right? Mm. The pandemic's a crisis, climate change is a crisis, war is a crisis, polarization's a crisis. But what the report is saying is having all of them at once makes each of them worse, makes each of them harder to deal with, and creates a mental health crisis Mm. of insecurity, of worry, of depression, because people don't know what they can do about these very real challenges in their lives. So along those lines, um, 
The report also sort of highlights that amidst all of this uncertainty, amidst that sort of dread and the mental health crisis we find ourselves in, at, along with many other crises, as we've outlined, there's also sort of an opportunity in that, right? Like there, there is a chance to adapt, a chance to adjust, a chance to find new ways to, to survive, to thrive going forward. It almost feels like after the, at the end of this conversation that that's a stretch. But do you see that kind of silver lining? Of course, we have choices and we can choose our future. That's what the Human Development Report is all about. It's based on economic thinking that we shouldn't see development just as a matter of economic growth. We need to see it as health and education and the ways in which we have opportunities to choose our futures. Mm. Our life chances are not just predetermined. They're up to us. So how can we deal with this uncertainty complex and all the crises we're facing? Well, first, by preparedness, being prepared for the next pandemic, being prepared for floods or wildfires. We're not doing great, but we do have the capacity to do much better. Rapid response, using new technologies and media and communications to get early warnings of what's happening. A big idea that this report suggests is that we can also work on social transformation to try to reduce the polarization, reduce poverty, of course, but also reduce division in society so that we can address risks in a more unified way. And I think that's a choice that we really do have open. All right. We'll end it on that note. Craig Calhoun is the University Professor of Social Sciences at Arizona State University, formerly president of the Social Sciences Research Council. Craig, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your expertise on this and for a note of optimism. I appreciate that very much. We all need that optimism, Lauren. In (laughs) fact, uh, pessimism is one of the real problems. That is true. Thank you so much. Take care. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. The Biden administration is proposing changes to the census form it says would allow for more detailed data about respondents' racial and ethnic backgrounds. For example, the proposal would combine the questions about Hispanic and Latino ethnicity with one about race and would include boxes to check to note what country they're from. To talk more about these proposed changes and what they could mean, I'm joined by Lisa Magana, Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion in College at ASU and Provost Fellow for Hispanic Serving Institution Initiatives there. And Lisa, let me ask you, first off, what you make of these proposed changes. Well, it is my understanding that it's going to be much more nuanced. And so if I may, I teach a course. One of my courses is Latinas and Latinos in the United States. And we talk a lot about identity and how Latinos define themselves. And so it is my understanding that we it'll be much more nuanced. And so um, the term that comes up a lot is this idea of intersectionality, meaning not only are we looking at race, but maybe what generation you are, what country you're from. Do you see yourself as white? Do you, are you Afro-Latino? Are you black? And so this is going to help, you know, provide a much more detailed analysis of Latinos in the United States. However, I worry about what will happen to these data. And, you know, in this, the past administration, during the Trump administration, 
one of the things they wanted to add to the census data, and this is this is census data that we're talking about. Yeah. They wanted to add a question of whether or not you were a U.S. citizen, and that was for the first time in 50 years. And that was really dangerous because this means that people that may be apprehensive about, you know, who who they are, where they're from, would not fill out accurate census data. And that's not what the census is for. The census is supposed to count how many people there are in an area, regardless of um, what's their status. And so there was a lot of misinformation. And we know that in the last um, census, Latinos were undercounted. Um, it was never added to the census, but there was so much misinformation that we know that some people um, were undercounted. And, and why that's a problem is that poor communities that need those resources are not getting them because they're being undercounted. Why is that nuance so important? Like, what what will having that data mean for those in the Latino community? You know, uh, it's a really great question. So I think personally, um, at least students will say, well, my mom is Latina and my dad is white, um, but I define myself this way. And I think it, it allows individuals to define themselves with much more nuance. But again, you know, I, I think it's a good thing to be able to have that sort of um, complex categorizations. But again, we're still being, as a group, collectively defined. When you look at how people identify themselves, how important is the census to that? Like, does it does it really make a difference for your students or for really anybody to be able to, on the census form specifically, be able to identify themselves exactly the way they would like to be identified? So um, a study by the Pew Research Center asked Latinos, how do you define yourself? And do you, uh, you've probably heard this term Latinx. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, something like 97% of Latinos will say, I am blank American, or my family is, you know, Mexican American, or I'm Puerto Rican, or I'm Cuban American. That is the way people identify themselves. Um, And then uh, actually don't prefer overwhelmingly the term Latinx. So again, you know, my students and I, we talk about this, and, you know, I make a joke. (laughs) And when we start talking about identity, I say, what do I have in common with (laughs) J-Lo? You know, what is it that I have in common as a Latina? What do I have in common with J-Lo? And, you know, they look, first of all, embarrassed for me because <laughs> they say nothing. But I guess it's a good conversation about what does that mean, Latino identity? What is it that we have in common? How do we define, um, you know, Latino? So that's a really great question. And I say also that how you define yourself is very much based on what your family, the term your family used. My parents didn't like the word Chicano. They thought it was, you know, the radical 60s and they didn't like that term. And, you know, I'll have students from Texas that define themselves as Tejano or people from New Mexico, they'll say they're Spanish from Spain and certainly Puerto Ricans in the East Coast. So it has a lot to do with what is personal and what is historic and what you're basically the region that you come in as well. Sure. Do you find that the census form is particularly significant to people in terms of being able to do that versus any of the other ways and any of the other venues in which people might self-identify? Um, you know, the census. OK, so here it is. Every 10 years we have these sort of discuss, and they've, they've changed. The, the terms have changed. 
I don't know how meaningful that is on a census sort of form that to think about when you I, when you define or you fill out those boxes, right? Every yeah. 10 years. And I, I do, I wonder what kind of questions are going to be there in, in seven, eight years. And then of course, what kind of administration are we going to have during this next census? That's all going to have, and you know what, maybe the term Latinx has now evolved into something else. I'm curious what you make of the the potential significance of being able to identify the country from which you have come or your family has come, like the significance both to the individual filling out the form, but also, as we talked a little bit about earlier, in terms of data, you know, knowing where people in the U.S. are from. Yeah, I think it's very important. And, you know, it's interesting because their histories definitely, again, um, impact politics or um, policy views. Um, it has a lot of a lot to do with how you see um, issues that we talk about here in the state. Yeah. So in your perfect world, how would the census form ask some of these identity questions? That's a really hard question. Um, I'm more interested in access and making sure it, that it's accurate. Mm. My perfect world would be it's accessible and it's ex- it's effectively counting everyone. And then my other perfect world is that this these these data are used accurately. Right. Is it in any way surprising that some of the changes that are being proposed now haven't been proposed before or haven't taken effect before that you know it's taken this long to to do some of these things? Uh, I'm not surprised. I, um, I think it's, you know, okay, so here's a, here's one of, again, one of those buzzwords, not buzzwords, that sounds silly, but we like to think about intersectionality a lot. And I think that is probably along the lines of the research evolving. And so, as I mentioned, I'm provost fellow um, for Hispanic initiatives. And so they're looking, we want to do a study on Latinos, but we want we know that all Latinos are not the same. We want to think about uh, what generation are you? Do you speak English? Are your parents, were your parents immigrants? Do you live in this mixed status family? So it doesn't surprise me. It, it I feel like it's going along the lines of what tends to be happening in research generally. And then again, thinking about these different, we're not monolithic. So it's good that the data is more nuanced. Lisa Magania is Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in College at ASU, Provost Fellow for Hispanic Serving Institution Initiatives at the University, and a political scientist in ASU School of Transborder Studies. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. More than 30 years ago, a civil war in Sudan uprooted a generation of children. 20,000 of them were left orphaned or displaced, fleeing to Ethiopia and then walking for thousands of miles to Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. Half of them died on the journey. The survivors were known as the Lost Boys of Sudan. Nearly 4,000 of them were brought to the U.S. as refugees. Deng Atem was one of the first of the Lost Boys to come to the U.S., and he made his new home here in Phoenix, where he's lived for 30-some years now. And now he's out with a new memoir, Jumping Over the Ram. I spoke with him more about it. Uh, when I came here in 95, uh, I was in high school, mostly trying to fit in with the American kid here, 
But when Mother of the Lost Boy and Lost Girl came here in early 2000, we started talking about our histories and what we went through when we were in refugees camp and when we were in the army, mm-hmm. in the rebel movement. So I decided, I said, you know what, it was a good idea to write my story, put it down and share it with the rest of the people and also be able to get over so much stress in my head. I always have to think about it and having all these uh, nightmares. So I just want to talk it out. Yeah, writing it and kind of reliving these things, I'm sure, was not easy. Yeah, it, it, was, it was difficult because I have to, there's a time that I have to write it down, and then sometime later on I erase it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I erase it or just leave it there and walk away because all the bad memories were coming back, they were flowing back. So the good part was when I learned how to play soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the, the good memories right there, but the rest of the, the struggle is quite different. Yeah. What were some of the specific memories in the book that that you didn't really want to relive when you had to write them out? At that one day I was involved in the battles uh, in the River Gilo in 1991 when we were evacuated in Ethiopia. But actually we tried to evacuate, but we were forced out after that by the Ethiopian rebel after they took over the government in Ethiopia in 1991. And that one was... Uh, terrible memories because that battle, I was involved in it. I was very young that time, but I was involved. I have witnessed uh, so many casualties and civilians, those who were forced to jump into the river and drown and others were killed. So these are the memories that I will never get off in my head. You must have been really young at that time, 1991? 1991, probably 12 or 13-year-old. 12 or 13. Yeah. And you said you were in high school when you came here. What are your memories of Sudan before that, before the war? I, I left my village when I was eight, and I walked for a month to reach Ethiopia, refugees camp. In 1991, we were forced to come back to Sudan, so I became a displaced person for the, uh, for the second time. And that, very much my memories of Sudan, it's just the war itself. There's nothing really good that you can remember except thinking and remember and thinking about my family. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this was your entire childhood, essentially, being displaced, being involved, you know, in whether it's living in a refugee center or walking for four months to get there or being involved in battles and seeing the war play out. When you got to Phoenix, like when you finally made that trip and you were one of the first ones to do it, I mean, what was that like? Was it a relief or was it terrifying? Well, when I get to Phoenix, yeah. I came here when I was uh, 17 years old. I was placed in the pastor care uh, with a pastor parent, my pastor mother, and then my pastor brother, who's also a child soldier like me. We mm-hmm. came from the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was totally different because I have to go through different change and culture uh, where I was a child soldier, doesn't have curfew to the point that I have to have a curfew when I was actually 17 years old. Mm. So it was, it was a different situation altogether. But yes, the, the goal was for me when I came here, try to forget everything behind and then try to fit in with American children here. Uh, when I was in high school, I was old enough. I was 18 and I was in classroom with 14, 13 year olds. Did you speak the language? Uh, yeah, I speak a little bit English, yes. Yeah. So you had to start over again in a lot of ways. Like you like you said, you would have been a senior. You're starting in ninth grade. I mean, what was it like? The best part of it, when I was in high school, we did PE classes, physical <laughs> education. 
And my record in PE, we're actually breaking the school record. <laughs> because I run 100, 200, 400, and 800. But I cannot qualify to, to be part of the sport because I was getting all at that time. Oh, man. Yeah. So, I mean, you adapted, obviously. You graduated high school here. You went to ASU. I mean, I guess what about you do you think pushed you to, to succeed so much? Like to, to not just graduate high school, but to graduate college, to get your MBA, to keep pushing in this place where you weren't from in a language that was not your own. Like this must have been challenging in some way, but you did it. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, uh, it was a challenge. At, uh, what happened with the foundation that was set by the Catholic Social Service of Phoenix when we were in the program, they have this uh, uh, team of uh, tutors that come and help us with homework after school. And, and that was one of the most important things that encouraged me and also have some other influence from Western journalists who I met in the camp that time. Uh, send me books so that I have to read all of these books when I read about America when I was still in the refugees camp. Mm-hmm. So when I came here, uh, most of my friends, they were in high school and they were willing and interesting to go to colleges. So also it motivated me a lot. The most important thing also, my father, despite that even though he didn't went to school in his life, he took me to Khartoum when I was young mm. to go to school, to go and stay with his, uh, his brother so that I can go to school there. But that also was the motivation that my father was willing me to educate me, to send me to school. Yeah. So when I was in the refugees camp, yeah. In the refugees camp, I was a very good student. And that's the reason that uh, I was one of the few was selected to do the interview with Western journalists when they came to the camp. <laughs> yeah. So you still go back and visit your family in Sudan? Ah uh, yes, I was there uh, 2021. I've been back. The first time I went to South Sudan was in 2016. Yeah. Uh, after 31 years, that's when I went and met my father and my sibling. I'm planning to go back to get involved in a lot of things, mm-hmm. politics, and also be able to contribute down there. Maybe teach, but it's still a challenge down there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the title of the book, Jumping Over the Ram. It doesn't necessarily make sense to people right off the bat, but there's a really interesting reason why you called it this, right? Absolutely. Jumping Over the Ram in our traditional Denka or Nilotics in Africa, when you've been absent from the village, mostly the village now, it's a country. When you come back to the village, what they did, they sacrificed an animal hmm. uh, for you to jump over that animal to take away the evil spirit that it may have, you have counter. You don't want to bring them to the community. Wow. Yeah, so it will take away those. So when I went back after 31 years, uh, the spiritual leaders gathered in my place, in my best place where I was born. And then they were waiting for me when I came. Even though I saw my father who was standing in the compound, yeah. so I was directed to go west and go all the way down there before, and then people make a line, and then they sacrifice the animal and I have to jump over it <laughs> so that now it will all the evil spirit will remain with the dead animal. What did that mean to you to go back after 31 years and, and participate in that and, and do that with your family there? Uh, it, it, it was amazing for me to, to go back there. When I was there, everything was new for me. I was just like 
a child beginning to talk or to walk. So I have to go through. I have to ask step by step, step by step. What about this? What about this? What happened in here? <laughs> and all of this. And I just walk around the compound and walk around the area. Try to recognize the trees and anything. I cannot even <laughs> recognize anything. <laughs> Pull up some area. memories, yeah. Yes. All the good memories, yeah. I just try to reconnect with everything yeah. when I went back there. Yeah. Dang Atum, the author of the new book, Jumping Over the Ram, one of the first lost boys to come to America, and the executive director of the South Sudan Twick Mayardic community of Arizona, joining us. Dang, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for telling us your story. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for this Thursday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for being here. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Have a great rest of your day. See you back here tomorrow. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.